If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 1 and uh, put a finger in Amos chapter 7. If you're looking in the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, that's going to be on page 811 and 816. Uh, today we are beginning this new message series in the book of Amos, and I know that there are a couple of Bible fellowship classes that have studied Amos recently, and I would just encourage you to think of that as a tremendous advantage. Uh, we are forgetful people. Uh, we often don't kind of lock in on things we hear the first time. And so uh, perhaps you will just hear me reiterate some of the things that you've already learned, and you can uh, grow in kind of locking those into your own heart. Perhaps you'll hear something from a different perspective or even something that you didn't have the opportunity to study in your Bible fellowship. But the reality is there are so many more than just those two classes in our congregation. And the book of Amos will be an encouragement to all of us. I pray the Holy Spirit uses this series to teach us. Now, I chose the book of Amos in part because in my tenure here at Leonardtown Baptist, I have yet to preach through one of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. It seemed like to me, you know, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And in order of chronology, uh, the book of Amos is considered uh, to be the first of the writing prophets. That is in uh, contradistinction to the preaching prophets like Elijah and Elisha. He is the first of four 8th century BC prophets that would have included Hosea and Isaiah and Micah. So uh, Amos is a contemporary of those three other prophets. Now, along with Hosea, Amos's ministry was focused on the northern kingdom of Israel, even though he himself was from the southern kingdom. Now, if you're brand new to the Bible, I don't want to just assume anything. Uh, so I want to kind of explain and give you a little bit of a background that will help you understand this northern and southern kingdom of Israel. It's often referred to as the divided monarchy, and you'll be hearing some about that in today's message. So this will be helpful information. What you basically need to know is that the people of God, uh, the people of Israel, were brought out of slavery in Egypt by God. Now, I've been preaching about that in the book of Exodus, and if you want to learn more about that, you can go online and listen to those messages. Now, he led the people out of slavery in Egypt, and then under the leadership of Joshua, uh, they went into the promised land. And for a long time, they were under God's direct rule. It could be said of them properly that they were called a theocracy, that God was in charge of the people of Israel. But then after a period of moral decline that is outlined for us in the book of Judges, God allowed the Israelites to have a human king at their request. They wanted somebody who looked strong and seemed to have all the qualities kings of the other nations should have, and God gave them uh, Saul to be their first king. Now that didn't turn out too well for the people of God, because Saul was more outward appearance than he was inner strength from God. And God showed the people of Israel, it is not about a king's strength, but God's power through the king of his choosing. So David was chosen as uh, God's anointed one. He was a prototype of what every king should be in almost every way. He expanded the reign of justice, and he expanded the physical borders of Israel. 
He followed after God, and he even demonstrated genuine repentance when he sinned against God. So David was uh, by no means perfect, and his reign was not perfect, but it was basically the best Israel ever had. So although he was not the one who would reign from Jerusalem forever, he did receive a promise from God recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In verse 12, we read, uh, this is God speaking to David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. And this was a promise given to David, the king of Israel. And so needless to say, with a promise like that, there were high hopes for his son Solomon. But as scripture and history attest, Solomon obviously did not reign forever. And after his death, the kingdom of Israel was divided over who should become the next king. In the south, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took the throne. But in the north, Jeroboam I became the new king. Now he had a unique problem of keeping power over the ten tribes of Israel that previously had seen all of their political and spiritual life centered in Jerusalem in the south. It was to Jerusalem that the people went annually and sometimes more often than that to offer sacrifices in the temple. And so Jeroboam I recognized that if this continued, there would be a gradual lessening of loyalty to his kingship in the north. And so 1 Kings chapter 12 helps us understand what was going through his mind. In verse 26 of 1 Kings 12, we read, Jeroboam said to himself, the kingdom might now return to the house of David. If these people regularly go to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will return to their Lord, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and go back to the king of Judah and be united in a monarchy once again. So after seeking some advice, Jeroboam I established several religious sites for the northern kingdom. One was on the southern border of the northern kingdom in Bethel, and another was in the northern portion of the kingdom in Dan, and there were others to be sure, but he, in those two places, placed a golden calf in each and instructed the people to do their worshiping there instead of in Jerusalem. In addition, Jeroboam appointed other shrines and he instituted festivals to match those of the southern kingdom. Each site became a focus for the official state religion of the north and a home for the official priests of the northern kingdom, one of whom we will encounter in our text today. Now, fast forward a century and a half from the early 10th century BC when all of that was taking place 
to the 8th century BC, and you come to the time and the date of today's text. Jeroboam the first namesake, Jeroboam the second, is on the throne in the northern kingdom, and Uzziah is reigning in Judah, which is just another name for the southern kingdom, which was made up of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And with that background and that reminder for some of you in mind about this divided monarchy, I would like to invite you to stand with me as we read these two texts this morning. I'll first read uh, the first two verses of chapter 1 in the book of Amos, and then we'll flip to chapter 7 and read verses 10 through 17. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible again, page 811 for chapter 1 in the Pew Bibles. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. Now in chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. The land cannot endure all his words. For Amos has said this, Jeroboam will die by the sword. And Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go away, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah. Earn your living and give your prophecies there. But don't ever prophesy at Bethel again, for it is the king's sanctuary and a royal temple. So Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman. And I took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. And your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die on pagan soil. And Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. This is the word of the Lord through the prophet Amos. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. Have you ever heard a lion roar? The Sours are shaking their head. Yes. I think you went on a safari. Probably saw it and heard it yourself. I don't have that privilege. I've only seen it on like the MGM thing, right? Like, you know, at the beginning of the movie. Amos chapter 1 and verse 2 sets the theme of the book. God is like a roaring lion. His voice is like the boom of a clap of thunder. Think Psalm 29. Did you notice the one who roars? Yahweh, 
the Lord. In the English translations, the more modern ones, they capitalize with all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the one in covenant relationship with his people, roars. His word is powerful. It is threatening. He is ready to attack. And thus the message of Amos begins with the essential warning. When God speaks, you better listen up. As you follow along today, I have three questions for you to consider and three points of application. First of all, consider with me the question, through whom did the Lord roar? Through whom did the Lord roar? We saw it in the very first words of the first verse of chapter 1 this morning. These are the words of Amos. The Christian Standard Bible tells us that Amos was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, which is just a little bit south of Jerusalem. Now, right away, you should know that the Christian Standard Bible is interpreting an unusual word that is sometimes also translated as shepherd. So you can see the footnote, at least in mine, letter A, says, or the shepherds. He's one of the shepherds. They're basically comparing the word behind this translation with the only other time it's used in the Old Testament, where it was said of the king of Moab that he was also a noked, or a shepherd breeder. Now, with this and other clues from chapter 7 about Amos, uh, this led to lengthy discussions between commentators and good and godly Christians who just want to know how well off was Amos. Like, the range goes from he was a poor and lowly shepherd to he was a, you know, sheep breeder and, you know, in, in charge of large flocks to somewhere in between where he was like a mid-level manager, right? Like kind of managing flocks for other people and sycamore fig farms and things like that. And the reality is, I don't think it matters too terribly much how well-to-do Amos was, as much as it matters that he had been called by God to be the purveyor of this roaring message. Look in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 7 again. We'll be flipping kind of back and forth between these. So Amaziah answered, so excuse me, Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman and I took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. In other words, Amos is a prophet, though he wasn't a professional prophet. And he had been sent from the southern kingdom to deliver a message to the northern kingdom. This did not, you know, help Amos become one of those who wins friends and influences people, right? This was a very unpopular message to take to the northern kingdom. In fact, what we see is that the Lord's roar through Amos was met with very fierce opposition by the priest of Bethel named Amaziah. This is where we need to consider our second question this morning, which is, from where did the Lord roar? From where did the Lord roar? Again, back in chapter 1, verse 2, the Hebrew behind the text is emphatic. In Hebrew, the clause, usually the verb comes first. But here, both the Lord and from Zion precede the verb in the Hebrew text. 
and similarly from Jerusalem, is given emphasis in the original language. So, in other words, verse 2 is, he said, the Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. There's an emphasis being put on the place from where the Lord is roaring. The Lord is in Zion. And the covenant people of God were commanded to encounter their covenant God there in Jerusalem. Those who hear the message of God through Amos are to interpret it as a call to covenant obedience that had required them to worship God the way he had prescribed in Jerusalem. You will recall that that is the very reason that Jeroboam the first had set up the altars in Bethel and in Dan and in other places in the northern kingdom in the first place was to avoid losing the political allegiance of the northern tribes when they would go and worship in Jerusalem. And we're reminded God had always intended for his government to be established there. And so by way of application this morning, we have to understand that although Amos was not motivated by politics, the delivery of his, in the delivery of his prophecy, the Lord's message often has political implications. The Lord's message often has political implications. This was politically incorrect for Amos to come and share this to those in the northern kingdom. Now, I'm afraid that in our divided political age, we often get things backwards. We allow the politician's message to have spiritual implications for us. But that's not how God's word works. We are to be shaped and formed by the word of God. And how we live and what we do should follow and flow from that and not the other way around. Sadly, too many Christians are discipled more by their cable news network program of choice than they are by the word of God. Now, as H.B. Charles Jr., one of my favorite uh, pastors, says, we don't need to hear from a pastor who can recount the news from Fox or CNN. We need the news from a different network. All right? I like that. I think that's pretty good. There's perhaps no more clear example of the political indifference of the Lord's message than what takes place in chapter 7 in the showdown between Amos and Amaziah. Shall we call Amaziah the state priest of the northern kingdom and Amos God's messenger? You see, uh, Amaziah's paycheck was on the line. He was happy as a clam, performing religious ceremonies in Bethel. Sure, he was in the southern portion of the northern kingdom, but I think he had probably convinced himself that he was providing a service to the locals by not requiring them to make the trip down to Jerusalem. They had a solid music program, probably at Bethel Church, and a nice golden calf to represent God, and the parishioners were prospering. So Amaziah was convinced, or had convinced himself perhaps, that God must be in this. And then along comes Amos. <laughs> Stirring up trouble. he gotten people everywhere astir questioning whether they should perhaps return to Jerusalem and return to worshiping Yahweh there. And so Amaziah twists Amos's words. He tells the king in verse 11 of chapter 7 uh, that Amos had said the king would die by the sword, 
which is never actually recorded in what Amos had said. He twisted the message. Amaziah further tried to tempt Amos, trying to get him to go into the professional prophet business. It had been lucrative for him. He just says, you know what? You need to take this business venture somewhere else. This is what verses 12 and 13 of chapter 7 are all about. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go away, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah. Earn your living and give your prophecies there. But don't ever prophesy at Bethel again, for it is the king's sanctuary and a royal temple. In other words, look, Amos, don't you realize that what you're saying is only popular down south? Like, you can earn some real dough down closer to Jerusalem talking like this. But I've got my own business venture going on up here, and you're not about to steal my parishioners. Of course, Amos wasn't in it for the money, was he? Which leads to a second point of application, and that is that the Lord's message is not for sale. The Lord's message is not for sale. This is why Amos basically says to Amaziah, look, I'm not a professional prophet. That's what the you know, prophet or son of a prophet type of thing means. He's like, I'm a shepherd. I'm a, I'm a sheep herder. You know, whatever I'm doing, I was a farmer, sheep guy. I wasn't in this business before, but I have a message from the roaring lion and I am compelled by him to share it. Now there is a day coming and perhaps is already here when pastors will be told, why don't you go look for a place to preach in a different state? Why don't you see if your message is a little more popular somewhere else, better received there? Paul warned Timothy about this happening in the last days. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is why it's so important that the word of God not be for sale and not be uh, for political uh, wielding. As we become more divided and states become more politically identifiable, the word of God must be central in the pulpits. And dear friend, I don't mind telling you this morning, this pulpit is not for sale. So long as I'm here and the other elders are here, this pulpit will never be for sale. If you want the lion from the tribe of Judah, you should never want it to be for sale. You need to hear from him and not from somebody who sounds like your favorite politician and not somebody you can pay to say exactly what you want them to, to say for you to hear. It's pre-political. The word of God is before politics. And it's true whether it's a message you want to hear or not and whether it fits your political party's talking points or not. Which leads me to the third question that we need to consider this morning, which is about what did the lion roar? Now, I, I did hear a few amens. I hope there are a few hearty amens in the hearts of those at the last statement. Because the message of Amos does not, in fact, fit into neat and tidy political categories. The truth be told, some folks might have twisted Amos's message and made political barbs about him if he was alive and preaching right here today. That's because the Lord was roaring about things like social injustice and religious formalism 
One study Bible said the message of Amos shows that God is much more concerned with how people treat one another than whether they stage elaborate worship and live affluent lives. As we study through the book of Amos over the next several weeks, we're going to encounter themes like God's impartiality with respect to the nations, God's judgment of pride, God's harshness toward those who would mistreat the poor, God's disinterest in empty religious rituals, the danger of overconfidence in one's status before God, warnings about impending judgment from God and his call to repentance before it is too late, the hope of redemption and salvation after judgment, which leads to the ultimate end or the purpose for which Uh, the message of Amos points, which is namely Israel's hope and consequently humanity's hope is in the line of David. God will raise up a future Davidic king like he had promised all the way back in 2 Samuel to establish his kingdom. And we'll see that in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, with which I will conclude today. Of course, we as Christians know that that hope was ultimately fulfilled in David's descendant, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, the Lord's message is not new. The Lord's message is not new. I really like this term. Uh, I found it in Gordon Fee's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And Gordon Fee calls the prophets covenant enforcement mediators. The prophets are covenant enforcement mediators. Amos, like Hosea and other prophets, were calling people to live out their covenantal relationship with Yahweh. In other words, the message of Amos was as old as Sinai. You remember us approaching Sinai and speaking about the covenant that they entered into the book of the covenant that we've studied, if you've been a part of the church. During Amos's life and ministry, the northern kingdom was experiencing a period of relative prosperity, a lack of conflict with Syria to their north. And the Israelites were growing prosperous and complacent. The only difficulty was that the blessings for which the rich were thanking God had actually come at the expense of the poor, which was in direct contradiction to the law of God they had agreed to, the covenant that they had entered into. It was very similar to the way that the altars in Bethel and Dan looked like real religion, but they were really just a sham. What looked like faithfulness was hollow and rotten on the inside. From this, we should all take heed. Because it's possible something looks religious, looks like it's from God, and may in fact be taking place for a very, very long time and is totally false. Just because it's traditional doesn't mean it's scriptural. And just because you can find a pastor or a priest or some religious person to say it's right doesn't make it so. Oh, how we need to hear this in our own day. There are places in our county where you can go and hear a pastor or a priest tell you something, and it looks 
formal and religious and it has the smells and the bells and it looks right and it feels like it's faithful to religion and it's false. It must come from the word of God. So that's why, brothers and sisters, we must always, always come back to the word of God. See, if we are in accord with his message and being obedient to his commands and preachers and teachers of the gospel would do well to imitate Amos whenever the sledding gets tough. Because true messengers from God, whenever hostility to the truth uh, comes, it must only result in them repeating themselves, never changing the message. In the flesh, I'm sure Amos was not enjoying telling Amaziah what he did in verse 17 of chapter 7. But if you look closely at it, it is nothing less than covenant enforcement language. Look at verse 17 again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword and your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die on pagan soil and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Now, if you're wondering what I mean by covenant enforcement language, just compare the result that Amos is predicting here in verse 17 with the covenant curses that can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15 and following. And I'll let you do that as homework. And I think you'll find the picture becomes crystal clear. God had told the Israelites that disobedience to the covenant would result in a host of consequences. And Amos was merely warning Amaziah and all Israel that apart from repentance, the very predicted judgment from Deuteronomy would certainly come to pass. Now from this, commentator Alec Motyer astutely points out, the nearer to God you are, the closer the scrutiny and the more certain the judgment. Far from their privilege as God's chosen people saving them, more will be required from those to whom more has been given. The greater the light, the greater the risk. Judgment begins, we are told by Peter, with the house of God. Now this is contrary to the way most people think about this stuff, isn't it? They think God's chosen people get all the good stuff from God, and those who are not God's people get all the bad stuff. But the Bible teaches that God's chosen people were supposed to stand at the head of the nations and mediate God's blessings to all the nations. But the Bible also says that they stand first in line for judgment because of their special relationship with God. We will study this more in depth when we get to chapter 3, but look at chapter 3 and verse 2 of Amos. We see the Lord say to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That known has uh, election language in it. I've chosen you from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Peter, like I said, confirms that. He says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In the book of Amos, the Lord roars from Zion. 
He threatens judgment on the people of Israel for their disobedience. Some of you today need to experience God roaring in promised judgment of your sin. God does not take sinful disobedience lightly, and he will judge. He will judge even those who look to be religious by outward appearances. God will judge sin. Mark it down. The prophecy of exile came true for the northern kingdom just a few decades after Amos preached. But here's the good news. You've been waiting for it, haven't you? The good news is that although judgment begins with the house of God, Jesus came to be the true and better Israel, such that they would say, out of Egypt I called my son, referring to Jesus. Jesus came to be first in line, to receive all the judgment that we deserved for our sins in himself at the cross. And then he became the place of refuge for all who will put their trust in him. And he invites those from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to find their refuge in him as well. So we must be reminded today that if we have found refuge in Jesus, we are supposed to mediate that blessing to all nations. Invite them into the refuge from judgment found in Christ alone. This is the promised hope of Amos. And it ends in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. It's fulfilled even now as Gentiles turn to the promised Davidic Messiah and place their hope in him. And so I conclude with the hope of Amos in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9. In that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. Do you hear the refuge where you can find refuge from judgment, where you can find relationship. I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Indeed, he is doing this. And indeed, I can rightly say, he has done it at the cross.